Cause I'm in too deep and I'm trying to keep instead of going on. Okay. Was that, is that song too old for you, Dean? No, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I never heard of that. I only know songs by Goche, you fucking <laughs> asshole. I only know songs by the Mountain Goches. <laughs> Mountain Goches. Oh, shut up. I hate that. <laughs> oh, that's no, good. don't give him that. <laughs> Alrighty, welcome back to our bonus series on uh, Montreal biker gangs that we're doing. I had to cut up the last episode, so that's why this is sort of starting in the middle of something here. But yeah, welcome to part three. Here we go. At the end of 1998, the Hells Angels are flying high. They have decimated the Dark Circle. The Rock Machine have foolishly destroyed themselves by targeting <laughs> organized crime. Yeah. Uh, More sophisticated organized exactly. crime. Exactly. <laughs> the Peltier clan, they turned crown witness ages ago. Essentially, the alliance in early 1999 is fucked. They are almost completely destroyed. That being said, the encroachment of the banditos is a concern for the Hells Angels. They keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward here. The Hells Angels are at the peak of their power at this point. 1999, 2000, these are, you know, midpoint in any yeah. kind of gangster movie where, like, they're rolling in dough. Mm. They control the drug they're trade. They're going through the back of every restaurant. Exactly. In fact, it's in 2000 they begin to have bigger aspirations. We're talking expansion. So the Angels start working more closely with the Rizzuto crime family, who still aren't really thrilled with them, but they know that they're still the best option available. Yeah, it's like an on-the-street crew. There is a member of uh, the crime family that prefers to work with the rock machine. He's just like, I don't like the Angels. Like, I've got my guys. I have my hustle set up. So he continues to work with them, despite the fact that the rest of the family is aligned with the Angels. Uh, coincidentally, the son of the Capo, the man who worked with the Rock Machine, uh, his son he would be found dead, the son, in his Porsche in mid-2000. Jeez. Mm. Shot several times in the back of the head, the Porsche parked in his father's garage. Oh, suicided. Mm. Yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sad. So at this point, the Angels start to diversify their portfolio, including... Trying to cash in on the dot com boom. Oh, I am not bikes. dot com. <laughs> You're not far from it. <laughs> so Kane reported to his RCMP handlers that uh, Norman Robitai, one of the higher ups in the Hell's Angels, told him during one of their car rides that he, Boucher, and Robert Savard, one of the most notorious loan sharks in Montreal, were going to start an internet company that would allow all the pawn shops of Quebec to sell their wares online in exchange for a monthly fee. However, <laughs> the twist of the plan was that any pawn shop owner who refused to list his products with the planned company would have his business burned down. Oh, Holy shit. shit. <laughs> oh, my God. That is like, I was going to say, the first part eBay. of that, I was like, that sounds like a legal business, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, as legal as a pawn shop can be. Let's yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these pawn shops, especially, were just used defense things. Yeah. See, our, like, be, people mm -hmm. talk about, uh, you know, technology taking over our lives now, but, like, even then, the digital age was uh, having grand impacts on small right. businesses. Yeah, it was threatening <laughs> you with arson. Yeah. So this website, thankfully... <laughs> would not come to pass. 
how, they, they couldn't figure out how to program it. <laughs> no one knew how to go daddy didn't exist yet. Uh, Mom's <laughs> like, I made a little like space invaders type game. Ooh, dancing Jesus. <laughs> uh, no, none of them knew how to yeah, do it. Yeah, they, they got distracted by Numa Numa and they just <laughs> stopped. Right. They wrote a chain mail and they were like, this is our website now. Yeah. Just respond to I'm this I'm a email. Montreal prince. <laughs> Have you seen this baby at Really Know How to Dances? <laughs> <laughs> they saw a screensaver. It was like one of the ones that just bounced around the screen and they were transfixed. <laughs> <laughs> like 48 hours just staring at this. How do we get that? I want that on my website. <laughs> <laughs> so on April 27th, 2000, Maurice Boucher was to meet with Quebec's construction king, a man you may recall, André Didi Desjardins. Oh, King DDD. Exactly. They were scheduled to meet for lunch. Desjardins, briefly discussed in the first episode, central figure in the Montreal underworld. This meeting was not as friendly as a lunch meeting sounds. Uh, in fact, Boucher was supposed to ask Desjardins to forgive a $400,000 loan with 52% interest that a friend of his had taken out. Jesus Christ. Oi. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah That's how you hey, make a loan. Can we just forget about that one? <laughs> 52% interest. <laughs> Someone's what sitting there and they're like, high numbers, numbers are better. They're sitting there and they're like, yeah, okay. I it's only half. I can pull that, that off. That means 48% is free. <laughs> <laughs> So Desjardins, obviously, was like, I'm not going to do that. That will cost me, like, a million (laughs) dollars. Boucher says, all right, we're going to meet at this restaurant. And Desjardins, being the businessman, arrives first, fashionably early. He waits for about 15, 20 minutes. No shine of Boucher. So Desjardins gets up. He walks back to his car. As he opens the door, he is gunned down five bullets in the back by an unknown assailant. Mm -hmm. Boucher was actually at a cafe at that time, having a coffee and a smoke. Ah, mm. classic. Ah. Plausible deniability. Yeah. Mm. Let's also remember that Andre Desjardins was the man who famously made Maurice Boucher's father's life a living hell when he worked construction for him Speaking in the 1970s. Okay, yeah. Speaking of construction, I have an article from McLean's that talks about the history of um, corruption in Quebec. One part of it mentions how uh, the construction industry is known for being like specific, especially corrupt in Quebec just because... It sort of started in the Quiet Revolution when they were building so many huge projects at one time that yeah. it just like there was so much happening that like there was a lot of corruption. And because there was like pretty heavily unionized and there was a lot of like the union leaders that would end up being corrupt. So then just a bunch of like shoddy contracts and everything. And that sort of eroded trust over time. So there was like even more and more corruption. But this is talking about like the 90s and 2000s. And there was uh, an, a price fixing scheme uncovered um, with 14 construction companies. And in several cases, this is a quote, according to Radio Canada investigation last year, these companies used Hell's Angels muscle to intimidate rival firms. So Classic. going going well. Yeah. So basically like the entire <laughs> industry was just fucked at that point. And then they interview some guy from U of T who's talking about like why construction specifically and why Montreal and a lot of their construction is publicly funded, where in other provinces, like we have just so many more private companies and you don't think of private companies as being corrupt, but obviously in order to get contracts with private companies, they're just schmoozing, they're just yeah. paying each other, which is just what happens in Quebec, but because it's the government that like they're schmoozing up and paying to get themselves to be the contractor, it's corruption. Whereas here, it's just like private. everyone does it, but it's in the private sector, yeah. so it's fine. But yeah. <laughs> also, like, so you can't do anything about yeah. it. That's yeah, just our just, reality. It just yeah. 
counts as business. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the most famous examples of shoddy construction work was Olympic Stadium, which literally would just fall apart on like a regular basis in the 1990s. <laughs> there was also a big bridge, I believe, that collapsed uh, onto an intersection that was also like one of these on the cheap shoddy construction projects. Mm. Wasn't it only, I don't know, the time has flown crazy. Either it was six months ago or it's been three years <laughs> when uh, he was like the head of some construction agency. He got shot like in a parking garage somewhere like 10 times. Oh. Do you remember hearing about this? Like vaguely, yeah. And he was like, and people, the media was literally just like, yeah, so he's like tied to the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> And, and everyone was just like, yeah, so he's like, uh, you know, big time in the mafia here in here in Montreal. And I'm like, how can you do this? Like, just be like, yeah, so they're doing this. And we totally were all aware of their connection to organized crime. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he got shot up in a drive-by. That's the headline for the article. Then's the break. God. Yeah, like everyone just knows this. It's insane to me because you, when you think about organized crime, you usually think of it as being something that's like underground and kind of in the shadows. But for some reason, if you're high enough up, you don't even have to be underground. No. You have so many people doing your dirty work that they have nothing tying to you directly exactly. other than the fact that you have an income. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to me. Oh, I'd like to make a correction. I actually undersold the amount of times he was shot. He was shot 11 times in the back. Climbing into Oof. his car. Now, uh, Julian Schur and William Marsden wrote that Desjardins' murder was not, you know, just a simple act of revenge or even an isolated killing over a debt, but rather the beginning of a new era of consolidation of the Hells Angels' massive drug empire, which extended throughout Quebec, the Maritimes, and was fast spreading into Ontario and Western Canada. Wow. They are going nationwide. Desjardins' business partner, partner, Robert Savard, was also killed on July 7th, 2000, after having breakfast with Boucher on the previous day. Now, we're getting close to the fall of 2000. In October 2000, there had been 11 murders of independent gangsters, not with the Rizzuto family, who had previously been allies of the Hells Angels. So Boucher is essentially tying up loose ends and killing anyone who is not protected by the Rizzutos who used to work with him. Partially motivated, you would have to think, by the fact that Scott Steinert was rumored to be an informant. Donald Magnuson was an informant. Uh, Danny Kane was an informant. He's getting paranoid. Rizzuto's like, look, guys, we need to start to wind this biker war down. You've won. We need a peace so you cannot interfere with my business. Because now that Rizzuto is closely tied to the bikers, any kind of bad publicity or just outright crime is starting to reflect poorly on the Teflon Don. And he mm. does not want to go to prison for, of all fucking things, working with these morons. Yeah. <laughs> so by 2000, the Angels appeared to stand on near even footing with the Rizzuto crime family. Two very, very different sides of the same coin. The Rizzuto family were well-groomed, savvy, smart. The patriarch Vito was known as the Teflon Don as he dodged indictments with a smooth demeanor. And then on the other hand, you had the Hells Angels. Rowdy, rough, brazen, and they did not make their crimes a secret. In fact, the only way to enter Boucher's elite nomads, the plus rock and roll biker chapter, was to commit a murder for the club. In fact, you'd get a patch called the Filthy Few. And if someone saw you wearing this patch, they knew for a fact you had committed a murder sometime mm -hmm. in some place for the Hells Angels. I'm not going to lie to you. Mm. That's some of the dumbest shit. 
Like, like it's getting like a patch, it's patches. like I killed somebody. Yeah, it is. I want them yeah. to wear like a little sash. <laughs> a little sash. Or, or, or I mean, they, have, they have them on their vests. They, also, the the mafia guys. They do guy also talking, sell cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the mafia guy I was talking about earlier was Andrew Scapa, one of the lead members of the Risotto. Yes, crime I was going to say that's so, a name I have seen. Yeah, so just so everyone listening at home can keep. Can follow along. Sorry about that. It's also important to remember that the Angels were no longer a counterculture element on the fringe of Quebec society. In Quebec, Boucher and the Angels had become an integral part of Quebec society. No more clearly illustrated than the wedding of Nomad member René Charlebois. Charlebois would be wed August 5th, 2000. This wedding was attended by Jean-Pierre Ferland and Jeanette Reno, two of the best-loved folk singers in Quebec. And they both received a million dollars to perform at this wedding. Wow. With oh 52% interest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they were paid by the word. <laughs> that sounds like the wedding as a whole must have been extortionate then. Oh my God. Yeah. Paying a million dollars for the performers? The yeah. entertainers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Two million dollars combined. So uh, Reno and Ferland would also just hang around and pose for pictures with the Hells Angels, you know, the classic <laughs> peace sign. Uh, this was really shocking to members of Quebec yeah. society. Well, at the time. I'm looking here. They they were both quoted as saying that they were honored to meet yeah. quote an outstanding man, man like mom. Oh, oh Jesus! God. <laughs> and it's important to talk like Reno specifically was like a matronly figure. This was like the woman that Quebec mothers wanted their daughters to be. You know, like very together, beautiful, talented. Like this was a huge, huge shock. Sorry, was that one of the pop stars or one of the people getting married? No, Jeanette Reno. She was the the folk singer. Okay. Oh, I was getting Reno and Renee. (laughs) This is so much. (laughs) So let's also remember that in 1984, Maurice Boucher, who was posing with these two heroes of the Quebec folk music scene, was convicted for raping a teenage girl at gunpoint. So glad we met them. And these yeah. two cultural titans are just like, yeah, these guys are great. Now, they would both deny being paid to perform at the wedding. Oh, so they were just friends. They just did it for that's free. The thing. Cool. It's like, what does this denial get you? You still went. <laughs> See, that's worse. <laughs> that's um, literally worse. Yeah. We, we paid we money for free. We paid them, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think their concern is like, oh, if I say I accept publicly accepted money from this criminal organization, I will go to jail. True. <laughs> yeah. So I think they were like, we'll take the PR hit and stay out of we, jail. Yeah, we were just walking past. And <laughs> <laughs> they seemed nice. <laughs> so here's a question I have for you guys. Why didn't the Rizzuto family and their patriarch, Vito, have the same cultural purchase in Quebec as the Angels and their leader, Maurice Boucher? He seemed too bougie. And they're Italian. Okay. Actually, those are two of the reasons I have. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so... The Rizzuto I'll be family. damned if I start hanging out with an <laughs> Italian. Italian in Quebec. I will, Are you I will me? not get his autographs. <laughs> uh, so the Rizzuto family tended to operate in the shadows. They were obviously still well known because, you know, anybody with that scale of an operation and that yeah. opulent of housing, you're going to be like, yeah, these guys are obviously mobbed up. Mm-hmm. But they didn't commit crimes as brazenly as Boucher and his angels. Also, yes, national identity. Rizzuto rose to prominence in the Montreal underworld in the 70s. It was actually kind of a similar turf war situation where he fought off various like organized crime families and they became the top one. However, Rizzuto was born in Italy and emigrated to Quebec, whereas Boucher yeah. was born in Hochelaga, Maisonneuve, Yeah, like that, that freak put marinara sauce on his poutine. Like he just did not belong. Oh, I watched a quick tangent. Watched a bodybuilder today talk about his old diet, and he used to put mayonnaise on pasta and steak. 
Ew. Yeah, right? Oh I'm glad that's the reaction. Because I was Ooh, like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. My heart. <laughs> so class identity also no doubt played a role in this. As Megan noted, yeah, Rizzuto and his ilk, very bougie. Very nice suits, nice cars, nice houses. You compare the average mafiosi to the average angel, who they prefer to wear leather, denim, mm. ride around on motorcycles. Yeah, and they're like seen with these folk legends. They're definitely going for a folk hero vibe. Yeah. And French-Canadian heritage. As mm. well, like most of these bikers were guys like with the name Charlebois, Normand, mm. Boucher. Yeah, the other guys were like Cannelloni, Catroni, yeah. <laughs> Rizzuto, Fettuccini, all Soprano. these food adjacent names. <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta, you've gotta think somewhere this rags to riches story of Maurice Boucher, who went from a high school dropout whose father worked for the most corrupt construction magnate in Quebec. Rags to riches. Now he's one of the richest men in the province. And he killed that dude, so yeah. crazy. And he literally got revenge on his old his dad's old boss. Yeah. And murdered him. You gotta think that struck a chord with at least some members of the Quebec working class. And also the mob control construction. You have to imagine there were some built-in resentments oh, of definitely. people like Desjardins and the mob who worked in close harmony to dominate that industry. Yeah. And also other dumb people who accepted 52% loans. I'm never getting over that. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the most incredible moments <laughs> of this entire saga. So I think these main reasons are what we're going to circle back to when discussing, yeah, why was Boucher such a cultural icon? I think it does cut along lines of class, national identity, uh, heritage, and just years of resentment that the average working class person held towards the powerful when the powerful so very clearly acted in a corrupt and negligent manner, both in what they built as public institutions, bridges, arenas, roads, and the way that the workers were treated by these powerful people. Thankfully, you know, that stuff's all in the past and nothing like that happens nowadays. (laughs) Crown informant Danny Kane would be found dead a few days after the wedding in August of 2000. No, not our guy Kane. A rambling, incoherent suicide note was left on his body. In, now, here's the thing. That obviously makes it sound like this was a murder. But in that note, it talked about, oh, I'm not sure if I'm gay. I'm not sure if I'm straight. Like, there were aspects that Kane wouldn't have shared with anybody other than maybe the person he was seeing who was in the biker gang, Ames Savard. Right. But I don't get the vibe that they sold him out. Like, it's just a very confusing. No one's really quite sure. I huh. suspect he was killed but it's just, it's very hard to pin down exactly there's, what happened. There's motive to kill. Yes. But at the same time, they someone... stuff about it. Someone, yeah, struggling about their sexual identity, identity uh, is definitely, you know, prime real estate for, for... And someone who's been feeling the noose tighten as, like, they are working with the crown. They've literally accomplished nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's very possible that he may have chosen to take his own life, but... It's so ambiguous that I myself am not sure, and the timing is very suspicious. Right, yeah, that's the problem. On September 13th, 2000, Michael Auger, a very prominent journalist who was doing a lot of the press coverage of the biker war, like writing these in-depth exposés on like the various crimes that these bikers were committing, was shot in the back at his place of work. This attempted assassination, which was seen as an attack on the freedom of press by the bikers, also had pretty major ramifications. In fact, 200 journalists would march down the street of Montreal in a rally two days later in a show of protest. This additional media coverage was also Je bringing... Je suis Charlie. <laughs> Je suis Auger. Uh, this was also bringing very unfavorable coverage to the Montreal underworld. And once again, Rizzuto was like, Jesus Christ, stop. 
you yeah. are going to blow this guys yeah i feel <laughs> i i'm saying this more and more uh you know like uh these black market like these crime bosses they need pr people that's right we need <laughs> consultants we, so, we need a mckinsey company to come in <laughs> oh god <laughs> so at this point in October 2000, Boucher is like, or uh, sorry, Rizzuto is saying, we need to end this war. So he actually brokers a Thanksgiving truce between nice. Fred Fauché, the new rock machine leader, and Maurice Boucher. Just Though, like in famously, World War I. Yeah. Famously, historically, those work and last, right? Exactly. Yes. This one definitely lasts, yeah. right? You can't see me, but I am winking. Oh. <laughs> so they are literally publicly photographed breaking bread together. Like, this is, there is no subtext <laughs> here. Smacking a baguette over each other's heads. Literally, the picture is like the two of them, each with like a hand on the end of a baguette breaking it in half. It's one of the most ridiculous things. They had and, a photo. And while on. they were doing that, they're like, oh, this is going to play so well. Yes, they're literally posing <laughs> yeah. for Wait, the sorry, tablet. who are the two people in the photo? Fauché and, and Boucher. Oh, okay, gotcha. And then afterwards, two and this is a direct quote, seal the deal. The two of them went to Club Super Sex together. Yes. The most prominent Montreal strip club. <laughs> and it's funny because the police yeah. are like outside like watching this. That's what we call a French Canadian handshake. Club Super Sex <laughs> is one of the most incredible names as well. But yeah. so the police are obviously keeping an eye on this. And like two of the bikers went to the police, like literally drove up next to them. And they're like, yeah, the gravy train's over, boys. It's all over, and they just, like, drove away. <laughs> so it seemed like October 2000 marked the end of a very long, very bloody conflict. But if the bikers were riding high through 1999 and 2000, if the angels were at their peak, well, they were about to crash hard. 2001 would really mark the end of the biker war, and not in a way that any of the parties involved had hoped. October 2000, as we've established, very consequential month. So, uh, yes, we have the truce between... The Rock Machine, who are the last remnant of the Alliance, as well as the Hells Angels. And you're wondering, like, why would the Angels accept a truce? Yes, it was obviously to placate Rizzuto, but crucially, it was to prevent the Banditos from joining up with the Rock Machine. And now they'd mm. actually have a war with someone with enough national support in the U.S., like, in terms of clubs and manpower, to where this could get yeah. even worse. There'd be mortars coming we, from the border. We would see, we could have seen an escalation of this biker war to, like, levels that would have been unfathomable. Yeah. Like full out anarchy and warfare in the streets. But Rizzuto steps in, manages to settle this peace. However, around the same time in 2000, uh, the Crown presents enough credible evidence to get a retrial of Boucher for the murder of those two correctional officers. Mm -hmm. Chance, you asked, oh, how did he get off the first time? Well, the Crown pre presented very credible evidence that the jury was intimidated by the Hells Angels and there was bribery and corruption in the trial. Go figure. Oh, um, wow. Mm. So Weird. Boucher would actually launch a countersuit against the crown, uh, alleging $30 million worth of like reputational damage. But when he launched this countersuit, he wrote the letter himself to like refute these claims and it was published and everybody was like, what the fuck? This band can't write because he's a ninth grade dropout. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, he wrote it in French and they were like, no, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> he's like Charlie <laughs> from Holy Sunny. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Please, 30 million, thank you. <laughs> Pretty much. And to make matters even worse, the Rock Machine just up and joined the Banditos anyway. Uh, <laughs> they went to this uh, truce and were like, no, it's fine. We're still going to join them. I hate fake yep. friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we're now moving towards 2001. In fact, on January 6th, 2001, a party was held in 
Kingston, Ontario. Hometown represent. Just over by the 401 on Division, where they were going to do... At the Denny's. (laughs) (laughs) It's not far from the Denny's. There was a bike shop in that area at the time. And they're going to do a big patch over for all these various bikers, the Rock Machine, and other prospects to become Bandito's members. So they do this massive patch over. Uh, they just start accepting like really low quality people as well, as would be evidence. As opposed to the rest of the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. cream of the crop that made up the organization. <laughs> they start <laughs> dropping their standards. Yeah. Even chaff by the definition of like biker yeah, standards. Like people who don't know how to read. Remember, in five years' time, a lot of these guys are the kind of people that would be involved in the Shed Massacre. Yeah, right. right. Not a lot of quality control. This was also January 2001 when the Crown finally got the break they needed. They ran a raid on an apartment that served as a bank for the nomad faction of the Hells Angels chapter. This was possible because before Danny Kane was found dead, he had given the Crown various reports and uh, testimonies that essentially linked this apartment building to the nomads. Like this building was used where they stored everything. It was run by like this very old man who was, it was in his name, but he was never there. Like mm-hmm. it's a front. And they would use this information to raid that bank. The police during this raid in January of 2001 would seize uh, over $5.6 million of drug money that were in that house just on that day. And like we're talking three times a week they'd come in and empty that bank. So this was just one one raid and they got $5.6 million as well as spreadsheets and floppy disks. Oh my God. Kane, among the things he left them was also a list of people that he suspected had committed murders for the club. They would use these names and they would then like, this is old school detective work. They would just like go and collect like leftover garbage from various hell's angels. They would just like throw in the trash Mm -hmm. and like coffee cups, like cigarettes. They would use the DNA from those cups to match like old files in their system based on the suspected list of names. And they were actually able to get convictions because they found DNA at these various crime scenes years and years ago that matched the DNA they collected from guys in the present. Right. So, like, literally, like, donut wrappers, cigarettes, coffee cups. This was enough to start bringing the Hells Angels down. Eventually, they have enough to uh, issue 23 charges of murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy, and gangsterism against 42 angels and rockers. So, Gangsterism is a crime? Yeah. I didn't even know that. If you wear your pants too low. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Jesus. Some of the charges later against a man by the name of Gregory Pizarro Woolley who is a Haitian immigrant who served as Maurice Boucher's personal bodyguard and hitman. Mm-hmm. So in this white supremacist organization where they literally said, yeah, we're not technically segregated, but why would you want to join if you are black? Yeah. Like the top hitman is this massive Haitian dude. Man. Wow. I know, right? And you know what? He's the only one in this story that does not snitch. Yeah, that's representation, baby. Yeah. He's literally the only one where it's like they got everything out of everybody else, but he's like, no, fuck you. <laughs> that's awesome. I like that. In March 28th, 2001, Operation Springtime, a joint venture between the RCMP, the Sorette de Quebec, so that's their provincial police, the Montreal police, and the Ontario provincial police resulted in the arrest Just of like angels. Just like Bon Cop, Bad Cop. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> resulted <laughs> in the real arrest life. of angels across the country, 138 of which were in Quebec. 138 bikers in the Hells Angels in Quebec were arrested because of this. Damn. Oh my God. When police arrested Eric Buffard, who is one of the angels, they found pictures of then Montreal Canadian star goaltender Jose Theodore partying with the angels at their Montreal South clubhouse. Oh, that Aww. boy knows how to party. <laughs> it was also discovered that Buffard had Theodore's personal phone number and several other members of Theodore's family had been involved with organized crime and loan sharking. That's mm. nuts. This is the best player on the only sports team that matters in 
Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Picture just hanging out with the Angels, oh all God. of his like failed Everybody. cousins. You've got the folk singers and the hockey players. Like, who else is there to get? <laughs> yeah, especially when it comes to like Canadian popular. Yeah, uh, like that's know, all media. we have. <laughs> so, of the 138 Hell's Angels arrested, 137 of them tried to turn crowned witness. <laughs> <laughs> what? With oh the exception my God. being Gregory Pizarro Woolley. <laughs> No. Oh my God! Everybody. They really all thought they were going to be the oh, one man. guy that the gave the testimony. And didn't what's get. so funny is the information they were giving them was already stuff they had from Danny Kane yep. years prior. Right, right. So they just gave themselves up for no reason. Exactly. Oh Holy shit! That's so funny. In spring of 2002, Boucher was finally, after trying to get him in court, years and years, was finally brought to trial for the murders of Levine and Rondeau after having been acquitted in 1998. The most damaging evidence came from the late Danny Kane. The reports he had given in 1994, 1997, 1999, and 2000 included financial records for the nomads. Remember, their bank was the one raided just a few months prior, which showed that over the course of an eight-month period in 2000, the Hells Angels had made a profit of $111,503,110 in Quebec alone. Oh my Whoa. god. Eight months. Eight months over a hundred million dollars. In Quebec. <laughs> yeah, right. And right. this is all just from falafel shops. That's this is right. crazy. <laughs> How did they get this? On May 6th, 2002, Maurice Boucher was found guilty on two counts of first degree murder and sentenced to 25 years without the possibility of parole. He is currently incarcerated in a Supermax facility and has another four years to serve Supermax. before he can try and apply for parole, but he's not going to get it. Mm-hmm. He's like the most famous person in these jails. To put it in perspective, once again, all prisons are terrible, especially Supermax, which are like inhumane to a yeah. level you would not even fathom, like 23-hour lockup, like no visits. But of the people in there, almost everybody else in the Supermax are like terrorism suspects, and then it's Maurice Boucher. To put things into perspective. Yeah, cool guy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Operation Springtime dealt the killing blow to the Quebec biker war. Though most of the Angels' uh, Canadian leadership went down, the Canadian chapters still rely on support from the various Angels' American chapters. Obviously, they're still a major player yeah. Angels in Angels in America. <laughs> That's right. And in organized crime in Canada in general. So it didn't bring the Hell's Angels down, but it certainly did a massive number on all of their leadership, including... Most importantly, Maurice Boucher. Mm. Now, some of the Angels' uh, American leadership actually saw this as a blessing. They really hated Boucher. We've heard the Hells Angels leadership in the United States got together and they said, take that fucker out. They said, this is the guy who's caused us all this trouble. (laughs) Yeah. The Hells Angels, still a very powerful presence. In 2016, an RCMP officer and an expert on biker gangs, Pierre de Champlain, told the media, Since 2000, the Hells Angels have had complete control over Quebec, from Saint-Ile to Granby. No one wants to work against the Angels independently, because it's not in their interest. Noting the funeral in Montreal in August of 2016 for a biker killed in a crash, Champlain noted that it was attended by 300 bikers, but also one to 3,000 people, onlookers oh who came to watch. God. They wanted to see the parade. The coffin pulled by the bikes. And we have to admit, it was pretty spectacular. This is a cop. 
What? Yeah. He was like, that was kind of cool. In 2006, the Banditos, remember them? They made their big, bold incursion into Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only possible rivals to the Hells Angels, self-destructed with the Shedden Massacre. Mm. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Leaving the Angels as the only national outlaw biker club in Canada. You can hear more about that in Wild Pogs, our episode on yeah. the Shedden Massacre. Yeah, the Banditos, sort of the Pepsi to the Hells Angels. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in March 2014... Detective Benoit Roberts, remember, he's one of the primary figures in Carcajou, pleaded guilty in a Montreal courthouse to charges of breach of trust and engaging in gangsterism. Pants too low again. Yep. Roberts admitted to accepting $125,000 from the Hells Angels in exchange for information and was in exchange to eight for years urban in style music. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> in 2015, you're going to love this one. Uh-huh. The Sorette de Quebec alleged in an indictment that Boucher had organized crime from his prison cell using his daughter, Alexander, Alexandra Mongo, as his messenger. I know, that's her name, Mongo. Alexander Mongo. <laughs> Alexandra Mongo. <laughs> and that his principal surrogate in Montreal was his former bodyguard, Gregory Woolley. Oh, oh shit. Who has been charged three times with first-degree murder. Yeah. Now, this is the one. One final anecdote before we get to the aftermath. In May of 2008, the career of Canadian Foreign Minister Maxime Bernier was temporarily derailed when it emerged that his girlfriend at the time, Julie Couillard, in 2007 was a former stripper who had been the sexual partner of several Hells Angels in the 1990s. This forced him to resign in June 2008. Wow. wow. Bernier left behind a NATO briefing at Couillard's house, and the media demanded his resignation as this was considered to be a potential threat to national security <laughs> by leaving an intelligence briefing at the house of a former Hells Angels associate. Right. But, like, they would not be able to decipher. No, they couldn't or, read Yeah, they wouldn't read that. So I don't think it's a big deal. Famously, I, do, I no, hate to be on his take, side they're here. They're going to take NATO hostage yeah. in their next project. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> NATO versus bikers. Yeah. <laughs> Bernier famously would recover from this and now has a sterling career as the leader of the PPC. Yeah, I just I'm imagining man. these bikers like trying to outfit like aqua bikes so they can tackle the ships. <laughs> in the no, no, they don't even get that far. They just like drive into the ocean. <laughs> like they get to the like they lemons. get to the edge and they just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> the bubble stop. Just like a crowd of 500 just, bikers. Just hear them <laughs> screaming out at sea. Yeah, you know how like when you're at a bar, you like you watch like a drunken bar fight or like someone in the street, and you're like, I shouldn't be enjoying this. Yeah, but like I don't like either of these people, so like may as well. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Right, NATO right. and Hell's Angels would be quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wrap up our primary characters and then have a, qu- a quick little discussion about yeah, why was it that Boucher and the Angels had, in the case of Boucher, and still have in the case of the Angels, so much cultural purchase in Quebec? But let's get to the characters. Let's start with Danny Kane. Died of an apparent suicide in August 2000. His evidence was obviously crucial in bringing down the nomads and over 138 Hells Angels, including Maurice Boucher. The Dark Circle, completely destroyed in 1999 and 2000 in brutal fashion. This was the definitive blow that really destroyed the Alliance. At that point, it was just the Rock Machine. The Rock Machine would patch over to the Banditos in 2001 and then collapse. The Banditos would about five years later during the Shedden Massacre. Mm -hmm. Gregory Woolley, arrested in 2014 for conspiracy to kill another Montreal underworld figure. Still in jail. There you go. Yeah. Still doesn't snitch, though. God love him. Credit where it's due. Vito Rizzuto, 
the shadow broker, the man in the background, uh, would actually be extradited to the U.S. in 2006 to face murder charges he committed in New York. Very famous killing. Uh, I think Al Pacino actually covered it in one of the movies he's in. Yeah? Uh, We're going to need all five of the boroughs for this one. It actually, I think, might have been that. Uh, maybe... <laughs> I think it might have been Serpico, actually. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, Rizzuto gets deported back to Canada in 2012 and actually died in 2013. The Hells Angels, still a very powerful force in the Canadian underworld. Scott Steinert, the right-hand man of Maurice Boucher, was killed on suspicion of being police informant. Donald Magnuson, his incredibly stupid bodyguard, was killed on suspicion of being police informant. Maurice Boucher, our title character, currently serving 25 years for two counts of first-degree murder, unlikely to ever receive parole. Even mom, I was just reading in 2018, uh, mom's daughter got um, charged for handling his money while he was in jail. And it's like something about, you know, you obviously can't, have proceeds made from like no, crime or something from any kind of crime, yeah. and and so they they charge her for that, and she's just smiling and having a good time. She doesn't give a fuck. Wait, so what year did he go to prison? Sorry, two thousand two. So he'll be out within no. the decade. He's serving three life but sentences. You say, okay, that makes more sense because yeah, if yeah. it was only he was sentenced to twenty five years with no parole, he still would technically get out after twenty five years. But if it was like they gave him. Multiple. Reading this from the Montreal Gazette, this was an article that came out in 2018. And yeah, so he was serving three life sentences. Okay. And then um, he got another 10-year sentence because he apparently was using his daughter as a messenger to get a hold of his banks to transfer money around. Mm. And uh, so he got another 10 years, which makes it so that there's still... It's it's essentially his uh, parole gets refreshed. Yeah. So now it's ten years plus twenty five years. Yeah. Um, but since like ten years has passed, it comes out to like I don't know. It's, essentially, there's still another like twenty years for him mm-hmm. before he even gets parole. They are still like working on charges against him related mm-hmm. to the biker True. war. Like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. There's I would say almost zero chance. Or if he does get released, like it. He's not going to be able to do anything, or he won't be out long. Let's remember, this man also has a lot of enemies. Yeah, as true. Well. So, just comes out as a 95 year old and gets shot immediately. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Vito Rizzuto, when he was released, had like a special penthouse made that was like armored. <laughs> Jesus. So, like, I will be killed. Mongo in 2014 made $160,000 a week. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Jesus. We cannot like overstate how powerful his criminal empire was. Yeah, fuck. So, Mongo's such a dumbass name. <laughs> it's probably Mongo, but... <laughs> it's Mongo. It's Mongo. <laughs> Never mind that shit. Here comes Mongo. <laughs> <laughs> so Maurice Boucher, why do we think Boucher had so much cultural purchase with, within Quebec? Because he, he spoke French. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's the bare like, He was like a lower class, like, like dyed-in-the-wool like, French-Canadian dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who, again became very rich and enacted change in a in like a world in a political climate where everyone wanted something to happen and nothing was happening. He also, also became rich in like a very un- easy to understand way. Yeah. Yeah. He, he worked for it. Yeah. 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 And I also like I imagine uh, a lot of people being members of the Hell's Angels like that's good income for people. So eventually it's like, you know, you would know someone who was able to make an income in an economy that's kind of gone to shit, right? So people people are okay with that. It's yeah. like, I don't know how you did it, but 
you gave this man a job, so I'm I'm on your side. I think part of it as well is like the people that supported him were like, well, he's not stealing money from me. Like it's yeah. he's not making money at my expense. Right. A lot of them were probably fucking buying drugs from his various dealers as well. Because mm-hmm. where else are you going to get it? Like the Hell's Angels controlled the drug trade, and that's not just like people we would think on the fringes of society. A lot of people smoke drugs. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's also always tons of sympathy for biker gangs. It's interesting. Isn't yeah, it? I like, think people just think they're cool, especially like give uh, that example of the um, arena applause. Like you see a, a literal celebrity in the arena, and everyone's like, "Wow, that's a celebrity!" And clapping, you're gonna be like, "Ha yeah, that's cool! I'm so gonna clap like, too!" Like that's a famous person is here. So like in cowboy films, like you would like old cowboy films, you'd have like the white suit and the black suit, right? To see who was good and bad. And essentially these guys were like the black suit cowboys. Mm. But like, you're, there's still a part of you that's like, damn, this guy's a cowboy. They, well, they yeah, embrace like the, the idea role. that there is still a frontier. Like yeah. if you wanted to, like that sort of, that, that allure of being free and being, uh, you know, apart from society and yeah. able to operate as you want to. And making money how you want. And if you don't like someone, you can just... Get them the fuck out of there. Yeah, frontier justice. I do like the idea of individualism as well, because with the 1990s especially, we're starting to see the first real results of globalization. Well, yeah, we're at the end of history. And things like NAFTA, and you're starting to see a lot of jobs just going elsewhere, and the jobs that remain, a lot of them are really fucking atomizing and horrible. Mm. So I think it's probably pretty natural for at least part of you, especially if you are someone who <laughs> is not going to be in a position of power to see someone of a similar kind of heritage, similar kind of background with not much in their pocket to begin with, becoming this like incredibly wealthy and powerful figure within the province. Also someone frustrated at the system to the Absolutely. point where they have to build up their themselves outside of it, right? Like you were yeah, saying like before. When, when, even if like people can't articulate it, they understand like they are being cheated. Absolutely. And like the, the system does not work for them. It actively works to keep them in poverty. It's an attractive idea to cheat it back. Yeah. To be yeah. like, okay, well, I'm going to steal. I'm going to rob. I'm going to do what I need to do for me because mm-hmm. uh, fuck you, you're, you do the exact same thing. Yeah. And also the idea of building your own economy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of different ways, not just with money, but also with like loyalty, respect, people who are willing to do your bidding and stuff loyalty like that. Loyalty is so funny, right? But of course, <laughs> loyalty, yeah, loyalty until <laughs> until you're in front. Well, of Well, that's the thing is that like all, like organized crime. I learned this from Goodfellas. Uh, like the one thing that everyone talks about is like, oh, you can't snitch. Don't talk. Keep your yeah. mouth shut because uh, you're loyal to us. But that's the first thing that goes out the window. It's all just pretend. It's yeah. all. It's as much of a show as our actual like capitalist economy is. Yeah, people love LARPers. Yeah, like we're, we're everyone at all the time is just pretending to like fit this role until any amount of pressure or heat is applied to them. Yeah. And then they will, of course, <laughs> cave for their own self-interest. Unless you're ha- um, from Haiti. Yeah. My, my thought is that I'm, I'm curious how like the small business owner thing ties into this because I feel like, especially in Ontario and especially, especially during the pandemic, everything is just like, we love small business owners. Mm. Like they are the backbone of society. Like small business owners are the greatest thing ever. And here's like 90 minutes of, we're going to talk about them on the news, but, and not to like shit on small business owners, but no, I you can. Uh, in do. Quebec, I feel like at this time, if you were a small business owner in Montreal, wouldn't you fucking hate the hell's angels? Like they're extorting you constantly. Or is it like they genuinely think they're like in with them and like part of the system or anything. Like I feel like people listen to small business owners 
a lot. So if the small business owners hated the Hells Angels, I'm wondering why they were so popular. But maybe they didn't hate them. Maybe they saw the extortion and like all this protection is just like, well, this is just the nature of being a small business. Yeah, I, w- I would I argue like it. the Hells Angels are like a small <laughs> business. They're small business owners. <laughs> yeah. Support yeah, local. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're local. They're in the community. As soon as they tried to branch out and expand, yeah. that's, when they, that's when they had the fall. You also have to think of it uh, in the sense where like if you are a small business owner in Montreal and there's this like biker war going on, <laughs> yeah. not only are you like kind of in survival mode, but also, you see the amount of money that these people are making, and you kind of want to get in on yeah. it. Well, the right? impulse, I don't want to step on you, sorry, no, but like okay. the, the impulse to buy and uh, own your own business is the same impulse to become a biker, right? Yeah. You don't want to have a boss. Brain damage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, but yeah, then they become no. like your boss. You're then beholden to the Hells Angels. Wouldn't that annoy them? I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, like, Most well, of these guys don't have that deeper level of like... Oh, come on. You'd be pissed off if someone was extorting you. Well, yeah, but what are you Until you're making money from it. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course they weren't thrilled about it. But remember, their options are support them or we will destroy them. I know. I just feel like people would pity the small business owners. But who who would they turn to, though? Because the police are in the pocket of the angels. Yeah, no one. I just mean culturally. They were the unvoiced. That's like being pissed that you can't fly. (laughs) Like, that's sorry. That's just your reality. Yeah. It's like they did band together, all the small business owners. They supported the the alliance, and they oh, got fucking. I'm sorry, open. your business now has a boss that you don't have control over, and is demanding <laughs> you do something for. Could you imagine? Oh, that would uh, be horrible. Maybe it's also because they had better unionization and people did a lot of labor jobs. It wasn't the same. Like everyone didn't revere small business owners the way they do in Ontario, where everyone seems obsessed with them. I don't That's know. Let's they just small, didn't give a fuck about the small business owners. All the small businesses involved in this were restaurants and bars. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. which also were, just those needed... were the fronts and restaurant ownership, <laughs> but also <laughs> like the idea of like franchising and like expanding your business wasn't as much of a thing because at the time like uh, restaurants and stuff like that were essentially made to keep themselves afloat and also keep mm-hmm. people who work there doing well and they were incredibly popular spots right like like dining in is not nearly as popular now as it was then yeah once they changed the Pizza Hut design well once yeah, they changed that, that you can't smoke out. indoors yeah, that's, that's <laughs> literally all it is if, you can't drink and drive and you can't smoke indoors everyone was like alright I'm out those are literally Quebec's two founding <laughs> yeah, principles national pastime <laughs> so, so like these restaurants and stuff like that like I don't know I think uh at the time, they were doing fine. And if they were told, hey, you have to cut out some of this money in order for us not to burn your place down, they're like, ah, I can live with that. And like, it, I'm, we're doing all right. And in the case of the Dark Circle members, they were also selling drugs like out of these restaurants. Oh, that too. was just money laundering. Yeah, they were, I want to know who they were involved with because they weren't just making their money off of Montreal. There's no, no fucking oh, way. No. But it's so interesting that we was literally NATO. have like this <laughs> this avatar of like evil shadowy capitalism just in this story. Yeah. And they get fucking murked as soon as <laughs> <laughs> it's like these guys were like the the test run for the Illuminati and they're like, okay, we need to pivot away from drug dealing towards child trafficking and we need to avoid Montreal at all costs. Yeah. 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 A young Jeffrey Epstein immediately <laughs> caught the first charter flight out of town to uh, the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. but like at, at the end of the day, like this is what like you know uh, organized crime or like this idea of like oh this like this avatar of shadowy capitalism is just like 
you know, maybe like a couple dozen guys who own car washes, yeah, with, you like, know, bad polo shirts. Yeah. It's, it's like, this is like the force that thought they could take down a biker empire. Yeah. Think of the balls on these fucking guys. Yeah. That's small business tyrant brain. Where it it's is. like, yeah, there are 12 of us. We can take them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you make enough money at a certain point. You are like legally stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be classified and take like a different IQ Yeah, test. like you know how like economists love graphs. We should make a graph of like income or like capital gains per and year. Intelligence. And intelligence. And Elon Musk! Yeah. Oh we have goodness. living proof of this. Maybe he took note of that. Yeah, no, I know it's a phenomenon. I just want to know like where those lines cross, like where they connect. Like how much you can make before your brain cells just start <laughs> decimating. Megan, send us out. Yeah, final thought. Man. Oh, uh... Vroom, vroom. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) All right, cue that Celine Dion.